When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were also on earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old and men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were evil at the time. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now here are your hosts, Basil and Gauntz. Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil. And I'm Gons, and we have our first repeat guest. Uh, Rob Skiba is an internationally recognized public speaker. He has an internet radio talk show called, what is it called, Rob? <laughs> my, my radio show is um, the Revolutionary Radio Project on Blog Talk. Yeah, blogtalkradio.com forward slash revolutionary radio. Okay, and then let me continue on here. He's an award-winning <laughs> filmmaker. He's a published author. Uh, he's an army veteran. He's a screenwriter. He's an actor and a former missionary. And he's uh, he's got some projects, a lot of projects. One of them, which is Seed the Series, which is what he calls uh, it's Lost meets Battlestar Galactica wrapped up in an X-File served on a secular palette but written from the biblical worldview. And uh, he runs BabylonRisingBlog.com as well as BabylonRisingBooks.com. Uh, he also has a side project, the Virtual House Church, uh, and you can go there and visit virtualhousechurch.com. And his latest book is Archon Invasion, The Rise, Fall, and Return of the Nephilim. And it's Rob Skiba. He's back. How you doing, Rob? <laughs> it's the May- show. <laughs> <laughs> may, may I add as well to that long list of fun things, number one, he's the only guest that we've had where we had two episodes of him back to back and on top of that you're the first guest to come back on the show again after your first visit so you wow. got to start you got to start adding that onto the list as well yeah right on I'm have multiple appearances on canary cry radio <laughs> exactly well great man it's good to have you back yeah it's great to be here guys thank you so much for having me so I wanted to talk about your book a little bit because, um, you know, I've had a chance to kind of poke through it. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the things that you talk about there, you've talked about before, but it's kind of in a concise uh, place where you can uh, go there and and check it out. What was the big, the big picture premise behind the Archon invasion, the rise, fall and return of the Nephilim? Like what, what was the motivation? Well, uh, as we probably talked about in, uh, in one of the previous broadcasts, I started blogging back in 2011. I just blogged for the whole year, uh, just kind of free-flowing. I didn't have any agenda or anything. I was just writing as I felt led. Uh, but then at the end of the year, uh, 2011, I decided to take a look and see what it would look like in print. Uh, so I pulled it off a of blog format, put it into some software to see what it would come out to in page count, and had about 1,000 pages of, of print. And so I thought, wow, I gotta, I gotta turn these into some books here. <laughs> right. So um, I separated them all out into categories and subjects and whatnot, and ended up uh, putting out my first book, Babylon Rising: The First Shall Be Last, in uh, January of last year, and w- always with the intent of having at least three more books following it uh, to get the rest of those thousand pages out. And so book two 
was intended to be book two of the Babylon Rising series is basically an elaboration on chapter one of book one. <laughs> so, because uh, book uh, Babylon Rising and the first shall be last, the first chapter is the Genesis 6 experiment. Right. And <clears throat> it's a fairly short chapter. It's just kind of a really general overview, but I realized I really got to talk a lot more about that. So um, that led to the writing of the second book, but after I got 366 pages in and I have not even gotten out of the biblical time frame yet, I thought, okay, I'm just going to stop here. I'm going to release this under a different title uh, and then do do the rest of it, which will bring us up to modern times uh, as part two of that separate title. And then when I put them together, I'll make it into book two of the Babylon Rising series. So <laughs> if that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, kind of like, uh, you know, I'm just going to, how can I get all this information out in a way that actually makes sense? Uh, so that that's kind of the conclusion I came to. Well, but, well, what's, um, and I've heard you talk about this before a little bit, and I've actually done a little bit of digging myself afterwards, but what exactly, if you can tell our audience, is an Archon? Why the Archon Invasion? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I titled the book Archon Invasion, The Rise, Fall, and Return of the Nephilim. And I had an, I've had an interesting side effect because of that title. I'm actually attracting a whole lot of New Agers and UFO enthusiasts and, you know, end of the world from the Mayan apocalypse type of perspective in the Anakim, or, or the um, Anunnaki, I mean, and the ancient aliens crowd. Because um, as I've come to find out later that their archons uh, has become basically a term for well, essentially ancient aliens. Right. Yeah. That wasn't my intent behind the title. It just happened to be a, a, a fortunate side effect for me um, <laughs> that, that's actually doing fairly well on Amazon uh, as a result. But um, as I understand it, my intent with Archon in the context of my book is I'm referring to essentially the there's 20 Archons or leaders of the 200 Watcher class angels that are mentioned in the book of Enoch, which took place in what I uh, took part in what I call the uh, Genesis 6 experiment. But... Um, Biblically speaking, archon is just a Greek word. It's a masculine noun. It means chief, ruler, prince, leader, commander with, an ath with authority. We see an example of the archon uh, word used in Ephesians 2.2, 2, uh, where it says, Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The word prince in the context of Ephesians 2.2 2 is the Greek word archon. So, uh for for my purposes, I was just thinking, okay, these are the, I'm I'm referring to the leaders uh, of the Watcher class angels that produced the Nephilim in Genesis six. But as I've said, it's had some interesting side effects. Right, because I was gonna, you know, what I found when I started digging around the term Archon was uh, a lot of the the Gnostic mythology that's really come to the surface recently yeah. talks about Archons as you know part of the children of the demiurge type thing, you know, and yeah. um. Actually, I have a quote here by a guy named Eric Davis. He wrote, a, I guess, a book called Snakes and Ladders. And, uh -huh. and he said, The Gnostic myth is that the creator described in Genesis is not the true God, but an oh. inferior demiurge. The demiurge has many sort of ministers or archons, and together they are responsible for this miserable world. And uh -huh. so, you know, they're kind of the, the harbingers of bad stuff. And, right. you yeah. know, so I, I don't know if you've looked at it from that angle or not, but... Um, yeah. I, I did as 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 an afterthought uh, as a result of some of the feedback that I've been getting because I, I, a lot of people have started contacting me on Facebook or or uh, asking me to be on the radio shows and and they're all coming at it from that perspective. Right. That's what made me realize. Okay, I probably should 
uh, get a little bit more read up on where they're coming from, especially right. as they go into writing the, the next book. And it's funny because right around that time, I was also watching some of the old Star Treks uh, from the original series. And there's that one episode, The Return of the Archons, with Landry. And Landry, you have come as destroyers. You bring an infection. You have come to a world without hate, without fear, without conflict. No war, no disease, no crime. None of the ancient evils. Andrew seeks tranquility, peace for all. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm like, oh, man, it's everywhere. You know, it's weird. It's kind of like, you know, when you get a new car, before you didn't see it anywhere, then all of a sudden, you know, now you see Toyota Camrys everywhere, you know? Right, <laughs> right, right. right. It's, yep. it's been like that with the Archons for me. Yeah, it's interesting, too. We actually just a few days ago or something got a an email from a listener all about archons sent us to a, a number of articles. I think that so I just recently started reading up on one version of uh, you know the the archon thing rolling around here. So uh, yeah. you know it's everywhere. Let me ask you this too, because it, what happened was you know when I started looking at Ephesians six, uh, yeah. rulers, right? Same word, archaic archon. Yeah, but that's feminine, right? That one. And yeah, I, that's why I didn't include it in my in my presentation on it, because that that one actually made me take a step back. I'm looking at that particular use of Archon. It's it's in the feminine use, and uh, I thought, whoa, and and I and that's actually what kind of spurred the writing of one of the chapters in the book called um, "Suspicious Suspicious Women and the Rise of the X Men." Uh, that's hmm. uh, chapter six of the book. Is because I started looking at various goddesses. Uh, starting in the Bible, you got Diana of the Ephesians or Artemis. You know, you, you got Ashtoreth. Uh, you got the Queen of Heaven mentioned in Jeremiah. So, you know, we have female goddesses mentioned in the Bible, but of course, a lot of them in the Greek myths and in myths of other cultures as well. And so, when I saw that that particular word in Ephesians six was feminine, I, I, I was like, "Oh hmm. man, that's just that's just crazy." And you know. Uh, I, I don't know if we talked about this one of the last times I was on your show or not, but on, in Revelation 9, it starts off by talking about the star uh, falling from heaven that has the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, Revelation 9 starts with talking about the angel with the fifth trumpet. So, we, we have a, a, a use of uh, or an understanding that there's an angel in that picture there. And a lot of times, or at least some of the times, stars represent angels as well. But yeah. that's not what we're seeing in Revelation 9. You've got a clear difference here. We have the fifth angel sounding a trumpet and then a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And it says, unto him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Well, when I, heard, when I saw the phrase, star fall from heaven, it jumped out at me because we see the same phrase used in the book of Acts. I think it's chapter 19, if I remember right, um, where Paul has stirred up a lot of trouble in Ephesus and they they basically had to have a uh, city council meeting kind of thing put together, and like the mayor of the city or whoever he was, um, just said, "Hey, look, wh- why are we listening to these Jews? We we all know Diana of the Ephesians here, the that that fell from heaven." Hmm. And when I saw that in Acts nineteen, it's talking about 
uh, Diana of the Ephesians, which fell from heaven. That, that stood out to me when I saw the same phrase used again in Revelation um, 9, fell from heaven. So I, a friend of mine grew up in Greece. He speaks Greek fluently. I asked him, I said, can you look at the Greek text here and tell me if there's any reason, because the word he is one of those personal pronouns. It could be he, she, it, they, them, us, you know, whatever. Right. And so based on the context, you got to look at the antecedent. And he said, he cocked his head and he goes, well, that's weird. I said, what? He goes, actually, that pronoun should be she. I said, why? He said, because star, the word star used there is in the feminine. And so um, I believe that Revelation 9, where it talks about the star that fell from heaven, is actually probably Ishtar Semiramis, uh, you know, um, the, the female counterpart of, of Nimrod, who is the one that we see coming up out of the bottomless pit in Revelation 9-11. Wow. And if that's true, then I believe that this is the woman named Wicked, Wickedness, that we read about in Zechariah chapter 4. Hmm. Where in Zechariah chapter 4, you got those two uh, stork-like women flying with this ephah thing. Right. And, and, they, and, and uh, uh, Jim Wilhelmson has done some really good work on that, uh, describing the ephah, that basically it, it, it sounds like a flying saucer with a lead cover. And inside of it, is a woman named Wickedness. And if you keep reading in Zechariah, uh, it says, actually I think it's Zechariah 5, it says that uh, she touches down in Shinar. Well, that's Nimrod's hometown. It says in uh, Zechariah chapter 5, Then I said to the angel to talk with me, Whither do these bear the ephah? And, and that's the thing that she's in. And right. verse 11, And he said unto me to build an house in the land of Shinar, which of course is where the Tower of Babel was built. And it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Like it sounds like a, a UFO platform yeah. for, for Ishtar, Isis, Semiramis to return. And so it made me question and wonder because Diana, Venus, all these different goddesses associated with the moon and fertility, they all trace back to the same person, just like so many of the gods trace back to Nimrod. And so right. when you realize Apollo is one of the names that trace back to Nimrod and he shows up in 9 11 as a result of this star opening up a shaft that lets him out, I thought, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Is this the arcos that we see, the, the feminine use of rulers in Ephesians 6, coming back to release her, uh, her, her half, what is it? Uh, she's his mother slash half sister slash mother. <laughs> I, mean, I forget how it works. There's, there's a wife crazy relationship. Mother type thing going on. Yeah, she's his mother, but also his half. It's crazy. I mean, uh, uh, and yeah. and his wife. But I believe she literally. I believe she is the whore of Babylon in the physical sense. Right. Um, wow. Coming back, and I saw in the Mesopotamian text that um, it it actually says that she left the Earth in a space, basically a spaceship. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, Tablet Eleven, it says even the gods were afraid of the flood weapon, and they withdrew and went up into the heaven of Anu, and it, and it talks about Ishtar being among them, uh, huh. leaving leaving the earth basically uh, at some point. So, you know, I, I don't put a lot of stock in von Daniken and Sitchin's work, but that doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. It may be onto something with some of it. It's just coming to the wrong conclusion. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of where my journey's <laughs> taking me in some pretty far out directions. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> an, that's a really interesting little gem, actually. Yeah, yeah, that Revelation 9, that one really got me thinking. So I would just say, you know, hey, I, I'm just a, a researcher. I'm a student like anybody else. I'm not declaring any doctrine here. 
I'm saying go read Revelation 9, compare it to Acts 19 and Zechariah 5, and tell me what you think. <laughs> right. Seriously. You know? It reminds me of the woman in the basket. I remember when I read it, there is a Japanese mythology of a woman that came out of a basket. I don't know if you've seen this, Rob, but no. there's, a, there's a picture that was, I think it was drawn probably later in like the 14th century or something, but you see this craft that came out of the water that's drawn there, and it looks like... It looks like a phone. Oh saucer. yeah, yeah, yeah. I have seen that actually. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a mythol. I can't remember the exact story, but it had something to do with. I could be totally wrong on this, but a, a, a woman taking a human, you know, person with her down to like the city under the water or whatever, and then when they come back up, she gives him a box and says, "Never open the box." Oh, kind of like Pandora's box. It, yeah, but right. he, you know, he gets out there and he opens the box, and it was his age, and he instantly aged to an old man. So there's some like time lapse, time dilation stuff going on there, and this is like an uh. ancient story, you know. So um, yeah, just just real strange stuff. Another you know point of connection there. Um, yeah. But uh, when I was looking through Genesis, or not sorry, Genesis, uh, Ephesians six. You know, I got to the point where I was looking at the words, the different words there, you know, um, you know, you wrestle mm. not against flesh and blood, but against, you know, all the different stuff, the rulers, the authorities. And, you know, obviously I think most people know the cosmic rotters, right? The yeah. the the cosmic powers, the forces of darkness. There's some different translations there. But when I looked that up in Strong's, there was an interesting yeah. definition and it said ruler of this world, that is the world as asserting its independence of God used of the angelic or demonic powers controlling the sublunary world. And I'm like, whoa, huh. whoa, whoa. You're like, what? <laughs> yeah. And I'm and I'm going, this is a, this is like the strong, you know, definition. <laughs> You're right. And, and yeah. I'm like, whoa. And, and so sublunary obviously it means, you know, between the moon and and the surface yeah. of the earth. So yeah. I just thought, wow, that's uh, that must be a, a realm that uh, some of these entities control. You know, there might be some beyond the moon, but as yeah. far as these cosmic powers over this present darkness and then what's interesting is uh darkness that word there is skotos and it actually means either physical darkness or spiritual darkness so mm. i thought it was convenient that it's it's that word you know because it, i think it's both outer space it's dark and spiritual right, darkness. yeah so but what, well that, and that's it's interesting about that that word it's just a kind of a cool word anyway cosmocrator yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like i just man i just well i'm looking for a word for a cool sci-fi show cosmocrator yeah that's a good one yeah you know it it, it does have one of those pretty wild sounding uh, you know it, it is one of those wild sounding words but you're right uh, that's a strong number 2888 and I was looking up as you said that it says the rule of this world that is of the world as asserting its independence of God used of the angelic or demonic powers controlling the sublunary world. Yep. Wow. <laughs> that's, 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 that's intense, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, man. That's like, whoa. It, it's even more heavy when you, when you think about all the uh, astronauts and, and the, all the Apollo oh, missions man. and stuff. And just the whole time, they said the whole time they were uh, being followed. You know, and they were being followed. There were yeah. beings and ships flying around everywhere out there. Yeah. So yeah, that's it's, interesting. It's funny because I, it just re I remembered a quote by Helena Blavatsky. Uh, in you know the secret doctrine, you know her channeled writings and all the occult uh, writings there, but she talks about cosmic rotters uh, in the secret doctrine too. Um, and and I thought, Rob, I thought you'd get a kick out of this quote here, but uh, basically she said, um, "This is the first germ, the seed 
of that huh. which grew later into the tree of astrology and astrology. The higher <laughs> ones were the cosmocrotters, the fabricators of our solar system. So nice. Just interesting that she mentions it of all people, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's sad, but the the occult, in many ways, they know the Bible better than most Christians do. Yeah. 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 We've been getting that from people, and it's it's kind of depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it is. But let's get let's get back to your book, though. Basil and I talked about Atlantis in the last episode. Uh-huh. We were looking at at Ham's line, and we're going, "What the heck happened to Ham's line?" Right? And yeah. and we brought up your theory, and you know, in chapter seven, you you write about that. Yeah. Um, so can you give us kind of an overview of, of, uh, where your research led you with how the Nephilim came back? Yeah. Uh, um, I know it's a, it's a big I, can of worms. Well, yeah, it is. Um, I don't mind opening it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was on a, another radio show recently. He says, you're kind of on the fringe of the fringe, aren't you? <laughs> I said, yeah, I kind of am. <laughs> Cause you know, a lot of us that study the subjects of New World Order and Nephilim and all that kind of stuff, we're we're on the fringe of Christian circles anyway. But I find myself indeed on the fringe of that fringe because I don't fall in line with some of the same things that my fellow uh, scholars, uh, the way they think about some of this. Most of them subscribe to the multiple incursions theory. The angels made it with women again after the flood. And I came from that camp as well, but the problem is the, my Bible tells me that I need two to three witnesses to confirm a matter. And, and we're really talking about an interpretation of one phrase and one sentence in the whole Bible, and that's the phrase, and also after that in Genesis 6-4. Right. And so the usual assumption is that the and also after that is a reference to the post-flood world, and the, the kind of ipso facto uh, assumption is that angels made it with women again. And I say, great, where's the confirming witness for that? And as... I went to look for that myself. I couldn't find it. It's nowhere in the biblical text, nor is it in what I call the synchronized, biblically endorsed, extra-biblical Hebrew text either. That being, of course, Joshua, um, Enoch, and Jubilees. These are three books that follow the same chronological order of events that we find in Genesis. So, I'm like, well, if that's not the case, if we're not talking about multiple incursions, then what are we looking at here? What what would the alternative be? And I, I look, I consider myself to be a researcher. I'm I'm like an investigative reporter or a detective. I'm looking for clues. I'm looking for evidence, and I'm looking for empirical data, something that I could point to, to as as a basis for my my theories. And what I found was, especially when I looked into Ham, um, and now I I will say that I found some interesting things in Japheth's line as well, but really, you find a lot in Ham's line. And <clears throat> namely, the fact that names, uh, there's a portion in chapter 7 that you mentioned, uh, Gans, uh, <clears throat> that I, I, I titled, What's in a Name? And I got a little book, you can get it, actually it's online, you can look at, um, I forget the URL for it, but look up J.B. Jackson and um, a, um, what is it? Uh, scripture proper names uh, is a book put out by J.B. Jackson that basically gives you the meaning of of all the names in the Bible. And when you look at, you know, we know that when people in the Bible had a a baby, they named him for some reason, like they saw an attribute or something. Esau came out, he was all red and hairy, so they named him Esau, which has that meaning. Jacob comes out grabbing his heel, so they name him Heel Grabber, which is Jacob. Um, so, realizing that they name their kids for a reason, even Jared, his name means shall come down or shall descend or descended. Well, we see in Enoch that it was in his days that the angels descended on Mount Hermon. Right. So, we see many examples of this. 
<clears throat> so when I looked up the uh, in the J.B. Jackson's book, A Dictionary of Scripture Proper Names, I looked up the meaning of the names in Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 20, which gives you Ham and his descendants. And they have a lot of weird um, meanings. And you may have heard Chuck Missler do a teaching on the, the meaning of the names of the t- first 10 patriarchs from Adam to Noah. Yeah. And how it spells out a sentence. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I pretty much fell out of my chair the first time I heard that. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it literally tells you the entire plan of God. It's, it, from at, the meaning of the names from Adam to Noah means man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God should come down teaching that with his death the despairing shall find rest. I mean, wow. that's like... Yeah. The whole plan of God is right there in the meaning of the names of the first 10 patriarchs. So I thought, well, what if I apply that same Chuck Missler-like reasoning to Genesis 10, verses 6 through 20? And I'm I'm not messing with anything in the text here. I'm just taking the meaning of the Hebrew names given in Genesis 10, 6 through 20, and this is what it comes out in, in a paragraph form, just taking them in the exact order that they're listed. It says, he raged a black terror, double straight afflicted trafficker, Black terror, drink thou anguish. Compass the chamber, thunder, compass the smiting. He who is coming, their love, we shall rebel. A double straight firebrand, travailing, affliction of water, blades opening the moistened morsel, forgiven ones bowing to spy. A trafficker hunting terrors, trodden down sayers, the strangers draw near. Showers of life, gnawing like thorns, they shall break loose. Double woolen enclosures of wrath. And I'm like... I mean, what causes a parent to look down at their newborn baby and say, hey, enclosure of wrath. What do you think? (laughs) You know, or terror. Yeah, my gnawing, you know, (laughs) firebrand and blades. I mean, what, why, why, what causes a parent to look down at their kid and name them that? You know, uh, so right off the bat, I'm going, well, these are definitely suspect in my mind. I mean, just by the names alone. But then when you com- combine that with the fact that every time yeah. you see in the scriptures God saying, okay, when you go into that village, I want you to utterly destroy everything. Kill the women, kill the children, kill the animals, wipe out everything. And I started to look at that and think, well, either God's completely schizophrenic and, and is prejudiced and into random acts of genocide, or there's a reason why he's doing that. Well, every city that God told the Israelites to do that were cities that were occupied by the ites that we read about in Genesis chapter 10, specifically verses 6 through 20, which is the same ones I just read off to you. So I'm going, well, every single post-flood account of Nephilim that we can see in the scriptures can be traced back to the people in Genesis chapter 10 with no angels mentioned anywhere. So I started to refer to them as the first X-Men, and the reason I say that is because they got their X chromosome from their, their mothers, which appear to be very suspicious women who got on board the Ark. Um, uh, uh, what, we, no, what do you mean very suspicious women who got on board? Well, <laughs> I, I can, I can I, a lot of people accuse me of spending too much time in the extra biblical text and making my whole argument on that. I'm like, okay, fine. Okay. I can make my entire argument just from the canonized text alone. Um, if we look at the uh, the chronology given in Genesis 6. We got Genesis 6, 1 through 4, angels mating with, with women. Genesis 6, 5 through 7 shows how God feels about the resulting violence. Verses 8 through 10 reveal how Noah and his sons were genetically pure. It says that Noah was found, you know, he's upright and just and perfect in his generations. That phrase perfect in his generations is uh, tamim, 
right. same word used to describe the pure red heifer and other places in the scripture for genetic purity. Um, and I believe his wife was equally pure. Now, if I use the extra biblical text to support that, I find that he married the daughter of Enoch, who was so righteous God took him home at 365 years of age. So, I think it's a reasonable assumption that his wife was just as pure as he was, which means their three sons had to be pure. Shem, Ham, and Japheth all were equally pure. So, then we have, that's the exception to the next two verses, which says, in 11, uh, verses 11 and 12 of Genesis 6, earth and all flesh becomes corrupted. And I simply say, well, how much is all? All is all, <laughs> you know. Um, verses 13 through 17 shows how God grows increasingly angry and tells Noah how to build the ark and gives him instructions for doing so. And then we get the first mention of the wives of Noah's three sons in verse 18. So even just using the canonized text, I say, okay, does 18 come before or after 12? Well, it comes after. So, if all means all, and 18 comes after all, then they have to fall in the category of all flesh being corrupted. And we also see in the book of Isaiah, where it talks about um, uh, uh, children living to be 100 years of age, basically. Um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth at the time of the flood were between 98 and 100 years of age. That's at a time where people were living to be almost 1,000 years of age. So uh, it's reasonable to believe that they weren't, they didn't get married until uh, uh, towards the end, right before the floodwaters came. If we allow for the extra biblical text to give us a testimony, Joshua chapter five verses thirty-two to thirty-six specifically tells you that he chose the three wives seven days before the flood. Um, it makes sense. These guys were basically adolescents in the sense of the time that they lived. Um, and they also had to help dad with a very big building project and get a whole lot of animals from all around the world gathered together, uh, some <laughs> cases by twos and some by sevens. So they uh, didn't exactly have time for this marriage thing. Uh, right, so even right. if you use common sense, it, it, it works. But, um, but again, if we allow for the ancient, I'll just call them commentary on the scripture, like the book of Joshua. I don't believe it was ever considered to be scripture by anybody. Uh, but clearly a lot of people in the Bible referred back to it as an authoritative text like we look at Josephus' uh, historical accounts, which aren't right all the time either. He gets stuff wrong, but he doesn't claim to be scripture, neither, neither does Joshua. But if we accept that it may be um, authoritative in the sense of a decent historical text, like we look at the works of Josephus, then it tells you that they had a funeral and a wedding on the same day because Methuselah died seven days before the flood, and there's a seven-day mourning period for the dead, and the three wives were picked uh, seven days before the flood, and they got married and went into a hoopah, which in this case was the ark, for seven days to consummate the marriage uh, in, the, in the Hebrew wedding tradition, which also has profound significance when we look at the last days. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, we'll note that the parable of the ten virgins say, five go in and he shut the door. That he shut the door phrase is the same as when they go into the ark and after seven days, God shut the door. You know, it's a, it's a direct parallel. So right. I... I look at these women as suspicious, uh, A, because they fall after the category of all flesh becoming corrupted, and B, because of the lineage I just revealed to you, uh, what the meaning of the names are in Genesis chapter 10, and the fact that all through the Torah, we see God telling the Israelites to wipe out this specific people group. Right. So, that's interesting. You know, what do we do with that? Yeah, that's interesting. I, have you heard of the, uh, I guess there's some Jewish 
lore that says that Naama, which was the wife of Tubal, or not sorry, the wife, the sister yeah. of Tubal Cain, was the wife of Noah. Um, I, I don't see any evidence other than the you know the, some of the Jewish commentary that I've kind of yeah, made into. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, Naama is correct, but there's uh, it, it's the daughter of Enoch in this case. We see there's repetitive names uh, in different lineages. Right. People are naming their kids the same thing. the The problem with the Cain lineage argument is that that places Naama at about 1,200 years of age at the time of the flood. Right. Um, talk about an older woman. Um, <laughs> if we go with the Enoch daughter. Uh, she's barely a hundred years older than him. So, I mean, when you're living to 900 years of age, what's a hundred, you know? Uh, right. But, you know, a thousand, well, that's a little bit different. Uh, yeah, the the um, the timeline doesn't work if okay. you go the, the route of Cain's Naama. Okay, yeah, that makes sense to me because I, I looked at that and I thought, that's strange. But, but like, uh, I was looking up the scripture while you were uh, talking just now that is referring to in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 6520. Uh, Isaiah 6520 says, There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath fulfilled his days, for the child shall die an hundred years old. But the sinner, being a hundred years old, uh, shall be accused or accursed. I mean, uh, so it's, it's Isaiah is talking about the millennial reign is saying that somebody who's only 100 years of age is considered a child. Huh. Well, wow. and, and so I'm using Bible to confirm Bible here. <laughs> right. uh, it, it makes sense that, that they didn't get married until right before the floodwaters came because they were only 98 to 100 years of age themselves. Right, because, yeah, I think it says in Genesis 11 that Shem was, what, 100 yeah, years old? 90, I think it was 98. 98 for yeah. the flood and then 100 when he had... His, uh, his first right. son. Our, yeah, our fact set or something like that. Our fact set, yeah. Um, which I, was, I actually did some calculations today, and I thought, you know, how strange that uh, if I got this right, and, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, but I think uh, Noah was alive when Abraham was born. Uh, yes, actually, there was an overlap uh, of about 50 years, if I remember right. right. It was like 50 or 60 years, yeah. Yeah, something like that. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is really wild, um, and the overlaps are, are significant. They're very important for us to understand because Shem lived. You know, he 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 lived. Uh, you know, obviously he was born just before he, the flood. He lived five hundred years after he had our facts said. So he lived for yeah. six hundred years. Yeah, that's right. So he he lived into the time. Uh, well, into into uh, several people's uh, ages, you know. Noah lived, l- like you said, about fifty years into the life of Abraham, um, but uh, Shem lived through the time of, uh, let's see, uh, well into Jacob, about into Jacob's life, I believe. Definitely in Isaac's, but I think he was either just prior to the birth of Jacob or just after that he lived as well. So, I mean, you've got a direct tie. Uh, with, you know, we talk about six degrees of separation. When, when you look at the overlap from Adam to Noah, how many people overlapped each other, how many people are still alive, you know, and had a chance to get firsthand information from people. Right. right. Uh, about the creation of the world and who Jehovah really is. And, you know, it, it's pretty significant. And, yeah. and, and, and I believe that Shem is the Melchizedek that we read about in uh, Genesis after the Genesis 14 war, hmm. uh, where, where Abraham is talking with uh, Melchizedek. Right, it, the high priest. It was fact, yeah, it was in fact Shem. Huh, I've never heard that before. That's interesting. Yeah, but Joshua actually tells you point blank that, that oh, really? 
is. But um, yeah, a lot of people want to say that Melchizedek is is kind of a pre-incarnate, pre-incarnate Jesus. I Jesus, say, well, yeah. well, you got a problem with that because that means he lived on this earth for an extended period of time, ruling and reigning over cities <laughs> before the virgin birth of you know from Mary. Right. Right. So. I, I really don't agree with that idea. Um, the, it, it says that he was in the order of Melchizedek, which which should say something to you. It was an order. It wasn't just an individual. It was a title of a, an order, a class of people, actually a priesthood of people prior to the Levitical priesthood. Yeah, and I think, doesn't the order of Melchizedek get mentioned again in the New Testament somewhere? I'm trying to find it. I can't remember. Yeah, it's in it's in Hebrews where it's talking about that uh, Jesus was in, uh, in, in he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek because he couldn't be a priest uh, in any other order because the he wasn't of the lineage of Levi he was okay. of the lineage of Judah so he's a priest but and he's a king priest at that which is what a Melchizedek is uh, it, Melchizedek is a Melchizedek it's a it's a king uh, priest so that yeah, makes sense yeah so. Yeah, that Yeshua is a king priest in the order of Melchizedek. He couldn't be a priest uh, in any other order because right. he was from Judah, not Levi. Okay, cool. Let's. Uh, we we went way off the handle there. Wow, I went bouncing off the rabbit trails. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's okay. Where were we with? Um, well, we were talking about Ham's kids, and right. um, and the other thing is that people. Uh, especially those who subscribe to multiple incursions, they'll point to Numbers 13 as the as sort of their proof text support for their interpretation of Genesis 6-4, the, right. uh, and also after that. Because that's the first and only mention we see afterwards of the word Nephilim. Um, giants thereafter referred to Raphaim, Zuzims, and Zamzumims, and uh, Gaborim, and all kinds of other names. Um, but uh, you'll notice in Numbers thirteen thirty three, it says that these are Nephilim that came from or of Nephilim, right? Not from angels. So, uh, and and this also disproves another theory that a lot of my um, uh, colleagues will say that the Nephilim were sterile. I'm like, well, that can't be because Numbers thirteen ref- and many other scriptures refute that idea by saying that these were the Anakim, the sons of Anak. Sons right. of Anak, <laughs> so, uh, who who himself was a son of Arba, who was an Amorite, who descended from Amorius, son of Canaan, son of Ham, who stepped off the ark. So clearly, the giants were not right. sterile. So, so your your theory kind of goes into the the idea that again that the wives of um, well at least the wife of Ham was potentially carrying some kind of Nephilim gene, and and is that pretty much. Well, actually, I think all three probably did, and that caused me a little bit of concern, obviously, because I'm like, no, that can't be. That that would mean we all do, first of all, um, uh, and it would also mean that, that, that Yeshua did, because uh, he's a descendant of Shem, um, at least through Mary. And I thought, well, okay, let me look into this some more, and as I did, I started studying up on genetics. Uh, I discovered a Punnett square. Uh, that's a tool that's used to to determine um, genetic offspring potential. Like if you've got a certain trait and your wife has a certain trait and you want to figure out if your kids are going to end up with that trait, you can do what's called a Punnett square to figure it out. Um, and it, just in a nutshell, just to make it to simple, I say, okay, if we suppose that the, the women were 50-50, uh, they've got two X chromosomes, let's say one of them is tainted with Nephilim genetics and one of them is good. Because uh, they're a hybrid. So, 
if you take the two X's of the female, one tainted, one not, and they mate with a normal male, that being Shemhem or Japheth, they've got a good X and a good Y chromosome, then you have a 50-50 chance of producing either a good, completely normal, non-corrupted human or a, uh, a, t- a tainted genetic offspring. So it's 50-50. Right. So if, if you produce a kid that's completely normal, that's, you're done. You, you don't have to worry about it anymore. If you produce a kid that's 50, that, that, that falls on the other side of the 50% odds that ends up with Nephilim, well, then you've got a problem. And God's solution for that was utterly destroy them. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so, uh, can God affect the odds? Well, sure, clearly He does in a number of places that we see in Scripture. But in, there's an ancient um, uh, uh, record of the fact that when in Leviticus it talks about casting lots for Jehovah or Azazel with regard to the scapegoat ritual of the Day of Atonement, and uh, it would either come up for Jehovah or it would come up for Azazel, and it was like a, a white stone and a black stone, and I think it depended on which hand it came up on or something. I, I don't remember exactly the details, but there is a well-known uh, Talmudic, I believe, or if not a rabbinic uh, writing that talks about the fact that for 40 years leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the lot always came up for Azazel in the same hand. Statistically, that's impossible. So, and what God was showing was, hey, I'm done with this whole goat sacrificing system. I, I sacrificed my only son as the, the one pure lamb final sacrifice. It is finished. You know? um, so for 40 years, God affected those odds. So it appears to me to be linked to an obedience issue. Um, Shem, obviously being the, the Melech, Zedek, the Melchizedek, uh, who was certainly a, a person who carried forward the righteousness of his forefathers. Whereas Tam, you see right off the bat after the flood, he's doing something weird in the tent with his dad and seems to have some attitude issues as you go throughout the rest of the scriptures. Um, and he t- talks about disobedience in the Bible, saying that he visits the iniquities of the fathers unto the third and fourth generation. Well, immediately you have to acknowledge that that has to be genetic if it's going down to mm. genetic offspring. Whereas obedience is honored to a thousand generations. So I'm looking at this and I'm going, well, it appears that there's an obedience and a heart issue going on as to how the odds came out. Um, clearly in Shem, it, the odds seem to always been in favor of good, normal, completely healthy children based on the Nephilim Punnett square. Whereas Ham, it clearly appears to be it fell on the bad side. And Japheth, for the most part, it was good, but there's a few uh, suspected ones in his lineage as well, namely Gog and Magog, um, which just blew my mind because it throws the whole Ezekiel 38 war into a whole different category, <laughs> for me anyway. Um, right. Everybody likes to look at that and think, oh, it's the Russians and the Chinese and whatever. I'm like, well... I stood on the Great Wall of China in 2006 and uh, came to find out that the Great Wall of China was originally known as the Ramparts of Magog. And as I started looking into Magog and Gog, I found all through history they are referred to as giants. In fact, even to this day, the, they have the Lord Mayor Parade in the UK every year and they march these two huge statues through the streets of the UK named Gog and Magog, um, two big giants. So. Okay. They're always, and you know how that got started. This is it's crazy, man. We go down some of these, these, these rabbit trails because um, the Lord Mayor Parade was started by King John Lackland of the House of Plantagenet, who was an Angevin, and the Angevins themselves they called themselves the Brood of Satan. So 
Now, King John Lackland, the signer of the Magna Carta, is the same guy that all of our U.S. presidents just so happen to be related to. And he's the guy that started this Nephilim parade called the Lord Mayor Parade, where they march these two huge statues of Gog and Magog, even to this day, through the streets. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. <laughs> I mean, you know. That's, that's mind-blowing. And now uh, it has caused me to look at the, the work of uh, David Icke a little bit different. I used to just totally write the guy off. Um, and I think that his conclusions are off because he's not approaching it from a biblical worldview. Um, and I think if he actually had a biblical foundation, he would come to different conclusions. But now I'm looking at some of his stuff because I'm finding some of the same stuff that he's been finding. Um, you know, I'm not going to go as far as to call them reptilians or anything like that, but they may have some tainted seed for sure um, in, in the royalty of uh, Europe and certainly in the United States. Right. And, and, and that's such a, it's one of those topics that, that it gets poo-pooed very easily because of the ramifications. Sure. Right? And, and it's such a touchy subject as well because, and I know you addressed that a little bit yeah. um, in the book when, you know, because we had talked about Ham's line <laughs> in the last episode, like I mentioned, and, and we had some responses of people that weren't happy about that sure. um, because of the, I guess, you know, I didn't even know this, but I guess that whole concept was used as, um, as, Sla- an, ex- as yeah, an excuse for slavery. And, and so I had no idea. Um, yeah. But uh, let, let me address that um, before you, you hold the thought of where you're going with that, because I do want to address that. Because um, I, I had certainly my share of feedback uh, as a result of this information as well. And, and it comes from an erroneous assumption that somehow no one's wife produced three different races of people, which is absurd if you think about that. You think that well, right. Shem produced Middle Easterners and Asians, and Japheth produced Europeans, and Ham produced Africans. It's like, are you th- seriously thinking about what you're saying, or are you just parroting what you've heard? Because that, yeah. you know, that makes no sense at all. They, no, they would, the most would, bizarre thing I'd ever heard. It's when, ridiculous. When we it's had received that, that, uh, that email and somebody, I, I had just never even heard of that before. Yeah, well, it's a teaching that comes out, uh, well, seminaries teach the Sethite theory for one thing, which is really bogus, that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are the good sons of Seth and the daughters of men are the bad daughters of Cain. And I'm like, well, first of all, it doesn't say that. Second of all, the good sons of Seth are supposedly the sons of God. Why are they the ones doing the bad thing in the text? Um, <laughs> and kissing cousins don't produce Olga Bashan or Goliath. I don't care how much spinach you give them. You're not going to get giants out of incest. Um <laughs> It's not going to work. So, I mean, really you have to go back to what the seminaries are teaching. And it is true that the, and Josephus testifies to this, that uh, many of Ham's offspring did settle in Africa and Japheth settled in the north and Shem sort of stayed right there in that Middle Eastern Asian region. That is true. Right. And and even Mizram, I think, is a name for Egypt. Yeah. And that's from Ham. Um, But one of Ham's sons, uh, or Mizram's sons, settled in Kaftor. Uh, uh, or is Kaftor settled in Crete, which is part of the, the Greek Isles there in the Aegean Sea, uh, and went up into Europe. And in fact, when you realize that Kaftor is the father of the Philistines, which is one of the other most used en- uh, words for enemies of Israel in the, in the Old Testament, the Philistines, um, that he, the Philistines, according to Jeremiah 47 and Amos, uh, I think it's chapter 9, if I remember right, <clears throat> um, came from Kaftor who settled in Crete, and Crete is where all of Greek mythology originates. So, you know, clearly we got giants coming out of Kaftor, son of Mitzrayim, 
uh, and probably the origin of some of those mythologies coming from there as well. But you, you have to go to Genesis 11 and realize that the whole earth, all the people of the earth, were gathered together, intermingling, mating with one another, mixing seed with each other in the plains of Shinar in uh, Genesis 11, long enough for them to build a city and a tower. So there's no way you can say that it falls into nice, three nice, neat categories that, you know, these three sons produce nice, neat races of people. It's absurd. You realize skin color is a result of melanin production in the body, which is the body's reaction to harmful radiation of the sun. At white people, we go outside to lay out in the sun, we get dark. Why? Because the body produces melanin to protect us from the sun. Well, you spend entire generations of people living on the equator, um, you're, you're going to be exposed to more sun than people who are further up north. Your body's going to lay down an epigenetic marker that says, hey, for future generations, let's just go ahead and produce more melanin. I don't care if it came from Shem Hamel or JPEG's lineage. Right, That's what's going right. to happen. Right. So it's an absurd argument. Yeah, and I, I, th- I think, you know, hopefully that helps whoever might have the issues there because, again, you know, we, we had never heard of that before and, and we're certainly not trying to imply anything like that, you know. Definitely. So, so um, Def- Definitely not. I'm, I am definitely not a prejudiced person in any sense of the word. Um, I'm just looking at the biblical facts and saying this is what it said. I didn't write it. I'm just telling you what it says. Right. Now, what do you what do you think about the possibility that you know you know how Graham Hancock and some of these other guys have talked about the possibility of these either the Anunnaki or the gods or whoever it is left the planet. You know the 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 Noah's Ark. They kind of have a twisted version of the Noah's Ark story of how yeah. they left the Earth via spaceship and came back down after the flood and and whatnot. yeah, well. Yeah, Tablet 11, I mentioned earlier, of, of the Epic of Gilgamesh would, would seem to imply that that's, that took place. And I, I don't really have a problem with that, because if I look at Matthew twenty four thirty seven and take it literally, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be the coming of the Son of Man. That, that, to me, when I read that, that is telling me that our day is parallel to the days of, of Noah, if we believe we're in the last days. Well, what have we achieved in our day? We've got people up in the International Space Station that have been up there for decades. Right. Um, and so if we've achieved that in our day, and our day is likened to the day of Noah, then I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that, that ancient pre-flood man may have achieved space travel or uh, been able to live under the ocean for extended periods of time. We also got people in submarines under there for long periods of time. You know, of course, the flood wouldn't have affected them. So uh yeah, I don't really have a problem with that idea. Um I don't believe that we're talking about ancient aliens. I think we're talking about advanced humans. And, and to your point about Atlantis earlier, um I think there's abundant evidence in the ancient record that's that would suggest that it was a real place at one time with advanced technology. So yeah, I mean I don't really have a problem thinking that pre flood man could have achieved space travel. Right. And and I mean I guess what I'm trying to tie it back to with the the, the genetic, you know, stuff that you talked about, is it possible that you know, maybe that they came around again and, you know, the, the curse of Canaan, maybe he invited these beings, you know, to start mingling their seeds again or not the fallen angels, but I'm saying maybe they were Nephilim. Yeah, Nephilim. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that's, yeah. I Like Zeus. Zeus is one of those characters that we read in the Greek mythology. He mated with anything and everything. <laughs> that, that dude, that dude was busy. Um, and so a lot of people will try to say that Zeus is, is an example of multiple incursions, that he's an angel mating with people. And while we do see that the, um, 
the seat of Satan referred to in Revelation chapter 2 is in fact referring to the altar of Zeus that was in Pergamum. Um, I believe uh, Zeus, in the, sen- in the sense of the way people came to worship him, I believe that the devil basically said, hey, I can use this, you know, and, and kind of made appearances as Zeus probably for a while and, and usurped worship that way. But uh, Dr. Ken Johnson's done a really good job in his book, um, oh, what's the name of it? Ancient Post-Flood History. Uh, of tracing uh, uh, the 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 history of Zeus back to a real person who would have been considered a man of renown, like Justice Four says, a great man of renown. Um, he's in in my mind, he's a second or third generation Nephilim. He's an offspring of angels. He's not an angel. And so, could it be that that variety of gods, if we can use that word, were those who did in fact have merkabas or chariots of the gods that they did fly about? to and fro. I mean, Odin's referred to that way as well. Um, Apollo, of course, same thing. Uh, that maybe they did have some form of travel. We look in the Egyptian hieroglyphs and we see what looks like spaceships, helicopters, and airplanes, you know, carved in stone. So clearly they had flying vehicles in the ancient world. Um, I, I, would, I would concur with the idea that it's Nephilim making return visits back and forth to mate with women, but I don't believe that Zeus is an angel because the text itself, all of the text about Zeus says that he was born, he grew up, and then he died. None of that fits any description that we find in the Bible of, for angels. They're not born. They don't die. I mean, where do we have, where do we have an example of, of angels that fit what we read about with Zeus? We don't. Right, right, right. Well, it reminds me of, um, based on some of Dr. Michael Heiser's stuff, uh, I believe it's Psalm 82 that talks about ye are gods, but ye will die yeah. like men. Uh, yeah. So, so maybe there's, you know, some reference well, there. And that that is something that I've really been trying to look into myself, and I need to get him on my radio show. I finally met him at uh, Future Congress. We've, I finally met him in person. Because um, I do want to look into that, and that may have something to do with, with the angels that, that left their first estate, that, that they may have actually been physically changed, that they may have... Uh, the chains of darkness, and, and Doug Hamp talks about this sometimes too, that um, they may have lost something uh, that they previously had, and that, like being luminous beings and being more like flesh beings right. afterwards. So, yeah, I think there's, there may definitely be something to that, and I have to look more into it myself, but uh, it, is, it is a path that I'm beginning to go down and explore. Well, and, and if they became flesh beings, that's, uh, you know, that's an gr- easy way to be disguise themselves as aliens and start, you know, pushing oh, sure. their agenda uh, onto the masses that way as well. My, my only problem with that is that there, Enoch gives you a very specific punishment for angels that mate with women. Right. It, it is the prescribed judgment. They are bound in chains and put in Tartarus. And the only biblical second incursion that I found any evidence of whatsoever is one that's going to take place, that hasn't taken place yet, and that's going to happen in the last days, when in Revelation 12, 7 through 9, we see Michael goes up to heaven and makes war with the dragon and casts him out with a third of his angels. Well, the story is picked up in Isaiah 14, verses 12 and 21, specifically in 21, where it says that prepare slaughter for his children. In verse 12, it says, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? 21 says, prepare slaughter for his children. Now, that is about as clear as it gets, that he's, when he gets cast down, he's going to 
apparently have children. And what's the prescribed judgment? The prescribed judgment is being bound in chains and put in Tartarus, which explains, and this is the first time I ever understood what's going on in Revelation 20. Because I thought, well, if his destination is the lake of fire, what's the deal with him being put in chains and prison for a thousand years and then let loose? I don't get it. Well, now I get it. The reason he's bound in chains and put in prison, which is Tartarus, is because he mates with women. And that's testified to in Isaiah 14. So that is the judgment. So if there were any angels, whether they were turned into humanoid beings or not, if they did that, they were put in Tartarus. Uh, that's the prescribed judgment. That's that's the you know the, that's the fine for the speed limit. You know, <laughs> right? And you know, I, I I've been thinking a lot about recently. You know, Matthew twenty four thirty seven, the 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 big line of as the days of Noah were, and it really kind of started to open up because I know Noah was six hundred when he got on the ark, but right. he lived for three hundred and fifty years after he got off the ark, right. and you know how much of that world do we look at to? Yeah. Maybe compared to what we're seeing today. I mean, you had Nimrod, you had, yes. you know, all sorts of stuff going on. And and I also, I know you've referenced uh, in the past the difference between the days of Jared and the days yeah. of Noah. No. And yeah. uh, so can you harp on that a little bit? Because I think it's <clears throat> yeah. pretty interesting and, and, it, and it gives us a good perspective of what what we are actually expecting to see as um, as the end times kind of unfold. Yeah, yeah, that was something when I when I looked at the days of Noah, I said, "Well, well wait a minute," because most people we say Noah, your mind automatically goes to the ark in Noah's ark. Well, that's what he's most known for, obviously. But you're right; he lived 950 years, 600 before and 350 afterwards. And um, if we use the extra text as commentary to maybe fill in the blanks of some of the uh, things that we see in the canonized text. We see that the book of Enoch clearly tells you in chapter 10, verses 9 through 12, that the uh, first generation Nephilim would only live for 500 years. And we know that the angels got busy right away, because when they landed on Mount Hermon, Semjaza, who was their leader, he was ready to go through with it, but he says, you know, I have a feeling I'm the only one that's going to go through with this great sin. He identified it. They knew that what they were doing was going to be wrong. They identified it as a great sin. He said, I don't think you guys are going to, I'm going to turn around and you guys aren't going to go through with it. And they said, no, 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 we're, we're all with you, you know, and they made an oath. And that's why Mount Hermon is called what it is because of that oath. So they got busy right away. That was the intent right from the start was to make with women. So I believe they did right away, you know, within that first year upon landing on Mount Hermon in the days of Jared. Well, if that's true, then the first generation Nephilim, uh, Enoch says, would kill each other off in a civil war and they would not live more than 500 years. I believe that's what spun off into what the Greeks call the Clash of the Titans. And if my timeline calculations are correct, then the, their 500 years was up uh, right around the 3000 BC time frame, which is interesting because in three, uh, 3114 BC, that's when the Aztec calendar stone shows up. Uh, and then about 25 years later, Adam, the first man dies. And it's about 20 to 25 years after Adam's death that is the end of their 500 year lifespan. And then right after that, their parents, the watchers, were judged, bound, and buried. And the text says uh, for 70 generations. Maybe we could talk about that a little bit too. Um, afterwards, but uh, and then Enoch is raptured, and about seventy years later, Noah is born, and his daddy takes a deep breath and names him Rest. That's what his name means. Well, 
it makes sense that his name was Rest because it was 70 years after the Clash of the Titans. You know, uh, there was a lot of chaos going on uh, in the years prior to that. And in fact, Lamech's name means despairing. You know, well, of course, if you have a kid during the Clash of the Titans, it makes sense you name your kid despairing. You know, right. Uh, so, so the question in my mind then that that the the death of the first generation Watchers is a full. 700 or the first generation Nephilim in the in the judgment of the parents the watchers I meant was is a full, full 700 years before the flood and of course you know Noah's born in that time frame and then it's 600 years from his birth to the flood so I'm, my question is well what happened in that 600 years that got God so mad that he wiped out the world with the flood if he already judged the watchers and buried you know and, and the first generation Nephilim were killed well I believe the answer is in a combination of Genesis 6 3 and Genesis 6.12. Genesis 6.3 says that uh, my spirit shall no longer dwell with man for his days shall be 120 years. And we read elsewhere that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And, he, and uh, Clement of Alexandria uh, wrote in his uh, writings and, uh, that, that he preached for 120 years. He's a preacher of righteousness. Well, if, if it's about first generation Nephilim as a result of angels, how, he, and he's preaching repentance, how can you repent of being born? You can't. I mean, I have French and Polish ancestry and, and Scottish. I can't repent of that. Right. <laughs> I was born that way. Um, so clearly something happened that they could have repented, turned from, stopped doing. And I believe the answer is in Genesis 6.12 where it says all flesh became corrupted. And again, if we allow the ancient commentary to help us out and fill in the blanks, we see in Joshua 4.18 that the corruption of all flesh came as a result of the mixture of animals and humans and, and one species being mixed with another. And that's also confirmed in Jubilee 724, where they sinned against the beasts and birds and everything that moved and walked on the earth. We're talking about genetic manipulation. So to answer your question, Gans, where you say, what's the difference? The days of Jared were marked by the production of angel-human hybrids, whereas the days of Noah were marked by the production of animal-human hybrids. And... I could turn on the evening news and open to Matthew 24, and it's the checklist. You know, okay, wars, rumors, war, earthquakes, pestilence, got it, got it, got it. Oh, days of Noah. What's going on in days of Noah? Animal-human hybrids. Hey, the UK just announced 150 animal-human chimeras created in the laboratory. You know, right. I don't see angels mating with women right now, but I do see animal-human hybrids being produced in the labs. Right. And yeah, and I, that's I, a big one for me. Yeah, and I just want to interject <clears throat> and, and just say that you know, you you had also talked about the sort of widening the definition of the word Nephilim into yeah. something, you know, Nephal. comes from the word Nephal, which just means fall. And, um, and oh, It has a lot of meanings, actually. Right, right. Well, that's just one of them. But I, I know that it's not necessarily describing a race, so to speak. It's more of a corruption. Yeah, um, yes. And, and I think when you start looking at it that way, and you look at what we're dealing with today, not just in you know the human-animal hybrids, but this whole movement of transhumanism in terms of technology and yes. man merging. Um, yeah, I think that it's possible that you know the famous Daniel passage of uh, you know yes. iron won't mix with miry clay. Well, there was an article that came out last year that talked about synthetic living cells that they've created that are made out of metal. Metal-based yeah. living systems, and I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa! Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. This, this has a completely different meaning here, and you know, we've all yes. we've heard from 2006 about brain cells interfacing with microchips, and yep. I mean, it's it's all heading in that direction. So, 
it doesn't necessarily have to be fallen angels meeting with humans. It can be right. anything that is going to alter and derail the image that we are made in, which is, you know, the image of God and all the kinds right. that God created each kind after. And it's the corruption right. of that, which constitutes a Nephilim. And when you, so when Bingo. you define it that way, it starts to open up like, whoa, like the days of Noah yeah. are here. It's not like it's going to be here. It's like, no, it's happening. You know? <laughs> it's our, it's here. Exactly. Yeah. You, you just nailed it. Exactly. And it was funny because I had um, Doug Hamp's book, Corrupting the Image, and Tom Anita Horn's book, Forbidden Gates, sitting on my desk. I was formulating some of these ideas in my head, and, I, and they were arranged in, on my desk with Doug's book on the left and Tom Anita Horn's book on the right. And I looked at that, I said, whoa, wait a minute. What if corrupting the image leads to opening forbidden gates that it, the result is the creation of Nephilim? And so I began to think of it in terms of just what you said. Nephilim is simply corrupted seed, something that has been changed and modified from the kind that God originally created it to be. Uh, and that you're right, that opens up a huge Pandora's box of possibilities. And, and if you haven't done so already, you need to go to 2045.com, 2045.com. Oh, yeah, we, we've done a show on it already. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. If you yeah. watch their video about what they have planned for the next 32 years, uh, that is absolutely the days of Noah uh, to the T. I mean, yeah. it is the corruption of flesh in every way you can imagine from uh, in the next... And now, let that sink in. 32 years, okay? From, from now to 2045. Uh, th this is right in our back door. I mean, yeah, it right. seems like yesterday that I was 18. You know, I'm 43 now. So, yeah. And, and, it, and, and if you look at the timeline video, uh, a lot of that's going to start happening very quickly. You know, like we're talking within the next five years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's accelerating. And it's, it's interesting because it's been almost 100 years since the first robot was built. And, yeah. you know, it was the 1920s when they, you know, when they, they claim, you know, artificial life begins, you know, the first robot is made. And you know, it was very quickly. I think you've done sort of a, a zoom in on you know the 1900s and at least the 1940s. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, we're yeah. talking about Babylon working in 1946, the Roswell yeah. incident in 1947, Israel becoming a nation in 1948. Ten years we're on the moon, that kind of thing. And yeah, it it just blows my mind because you know when you sit there and look through what we've accomplished in the last century. I mean, we are living in a completely different world from most of yeah. history. And I don't think most people stop to think about that. And uh, it, it just really does reflect what Jesus says there in Matthew 24. Well, it does. And, and, and it's the other side of, of uh, the flood and Noah's 350 years that were on the other side of the flood. That makes me think about a lot of other things that are happening, like CERN. You know, we were talking about CERN uh, earlier. Uh, you know, they're trying to create interdimensional portals, trying to find the God particle, doing all sorts of crazy experiments with names like Atlas, you know, and uh, things like that, that uh, I believe that the Tower of Babel was actually a portal that uh, whose top may reach in the heaven was not about height. If it was, they wouldn't have built it in the plains of Shinar, you know. <laughs> you don't, if you're trying to get into heaven using a tall building, you build it on a mountaintop, not in a valley. Right. Uh, I believe we're talking about the creation of interdimensional portals, and that's what we're seeing happening on, on this side uh, in our days that, that is on the post-flood side of his life uh, as well. And so, yeah, yeah you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff yeah, going on. Yeah, and just, just to comment on the, the, uh, the CERN thing, 
um, you know, they're shutting down, right, to rebuild it and beef it up in, in a couple of years, yeah. which is interesting that it's, you know, 2016, uh, or sorry, 2000, <coughs> what is it, 15, that it'll be opened up again. But The Guardian, uh, you know, the UK, just did an article in, actually, it was released on January 1st, but they interviewed one of the guys that works at CERN, and yeah. he basically said that what you'd expect to see is, you know, with the right energy, that, you know, all of a sudden the gravitational force is going to be expanded. And in that moment, they should be able to see if, if it's, if there are other dimensions, they should be able to see in those extra mm. dimensions. Crazy. And I'm thinking, whoa, this guy's like a physicist that works at probably the top facility yeah. that you can on earth. You know, it's yeah, the, yeah. the, the Mecca for physicists. And he's yeah. saying, oh yeah, once we figure this out with the energy and the fluctuations, we'll be able to see into extra dimensions. <laughs> I'm going, whoa. That, that, is, <laughs> that is exactly what's going on in Genesis 11. And what's interesting when you read Genesis 11 uh, is God's response, where God says, now anything they imagine to do will not be restrained from them. And that's the reason why he confounds the language. And, but if you look at our day, uh, we have to reckon with something. The whole world does have one language. All of computer code, all of it, is right. written in English. It's English. It's all written in English. And uh, so th we are united as a planet with one language. It is the international business language. It is the international code language. And, you know, you got physicists doing what you're saying right there, exactly what I believe they're doing, trying to open up a portal into other dimensions in Genesis 11, which yeah. is in the 350 years of Noah's life after the flood. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's crazy. And, and if, when you did look you at, hear it? Go ahead. Oh, uh, I was just going to ask, did you hear the uh, interview that I did with Tim Bentz on the uh, Federal Reserve? You know, I, I heard you talk about it, but I haven't had a chance to actually listen to it. I heard it oh, was uh, just man. amazing. Yeah, that, that ranks up there as one of the top shows that I've done anyway. Uh, I met Tim Bentz as a result of hanging out with Peter Goodgame, uh, which was really cool to, to finally meet him. Uh, and, and we shared a booth. I gave him a little bit of space on my table for his books. And uh, he introduced me after the conference was over on Monday. He was still hanging out for another two days in Dallas. Uh, so I went to see him on Monday after the conference, and he introduced me to this guy named Tim Bentz who had, uh, had some pretty extraordinary spiritual warfare type experiences in the Middle East with regard to Canaanite altars that were being dug up uh, in the land. Now, God said to his people, when you see these things, you need to tear them down because they are a portal. There's something about blood that opens up uh, spiritual um, portals. I don't know what else to call it, energy, something, uh, the, the spilling of blood, specifically that of babies. And uh, after he... He was able to break some of these altars, waging spiritual warfare in the Middle East uh, for a couple months. God brought him back to the States, and on the way home, he said, I need, you need to stop at Jekyll Island, and I, I've got to show you something there. And he's like, Jekyll Island? Why, why I got to go there? Come to find out that the, uh, the Rockefeller estate, the parlor where the Federal Reserve was conceived in, in this parlor, it was in Rockefeller's house, is built directly over a Canaanite blood altar from the Tamuka Indian tribes that trace back to the Canaanites. Where it, it, he was there. He's like, Lord, I don't know what, what I'm doing here. Why am I here? And, you know, poking around and talking to people. He got a room at the hotel there at Jekyll Island. And anyway, met the curator or somebody that runs the museum there and uh, was it taken into a room where he saw the bones there were there was these bones were like eight and a half feet to nine feet tall, uh, the chiefs of the Tamu Indians, and 
showed him a painting or drawing or some kind of depiction uh, showing these guys holding babies by their feet and chopping their heads off and spilling the blood all over this altar, which looked just like the altars that he dealt with in the Middle East. And some of them are holding weapons that look just like Canaanite weapons. So <laughs> come to find out that our, you want to know why our banking system is so screwed up and so corrupt? It's because it was, it was conceived over a Canaanite blood altar. In, in the Jeez, House of Rockefeller. crazy. You, you got to listen to that show, man. It's like, yeah, it's just nuts. It's the featured, if you go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash revolutionary radio, it's the featured episode, uh, part one, and you can look for part two in the archives. But yeah, I mean, we are living in the days of Noah, man, in every way you can imagine. Yeah, that's crazy. Now, you mentioned... Uh, a little bit about giants there. And I know that there's a chapter in the book, in your book, called Facing Giants. Um, What are your thoughts on giants? And, uh, you know, as we continue through history here, do you think we're going to see some more of those big guys? Um, Well, you know, if you listen to people like Steve Quayle, uh, he he claims that uh, some of our troops encountered uh, a red-headed cannibalistic giant in Afghanistan uh, there's some interesting stories out there about that. And he also huh. claims that there's there's a bunch of them on the Solomon Islands, uh, which has been experiencing a lot of earthquakes lately. Uh, that's kind of wild too. Or I mean, if you listen or if you do a Google search on uh, Phil Schneider and s- listen to some of his testimonies about what's underground, uh, uh, they may be among us already. Um, uh, as far as the hybridization program. Uh, the Dr. David Jacobs and I know L.A. Marzulli and others uh, spent a lot of time talking about. It appears that they're trying to do the Daniel 243 thing and mixing seed, not through copulation though, uh, but through uh, experimentation and laboratory settings to make hybrids that look just like you and me. Right. So uh, you know they may be among us and we just don't know it because they look just like us, but there also may be the giant variety out there as well. Uh, so who knows? Yeah, it's it's so tough when you start again, when you start describing the possibility of people walking around that aren't real people. And and yeah. I know that, you know, scripturally that it talks about those whose names were not written in the book of life, you know, I think yeah. Revelation seventeen. Yeah. So so there's definitely something there where it's like, okay, there might be some folks walking around that aren't really, you know, supposed to be there. And, and but it's so hard to even converse with, you know, your normal folks about that because it automatically becomes this, you know, <laughs> either David a racial Ike. thing or, yeah, or David Icke, yeah. And it's just, it's such a challenging topic. I, you know, in the end, I don't think it's necessarily important for us to to uh, be able to say if if someone is, you know, an Ephilim or not. I don't think that's right. the point. Um, right. But I know that's the fear of some, some folks that uh, tend to disagree with some of the things that you talk about. Yeah. Well, yeah, they just got to sure. get over it. <laughs> <laughs> Get over it. Well, I mean, you know, it's funny because you mentioned that these their names were not found written. And these are the ones that go up, that follow the beast. And when I first saw that, I'm like, well, wait a minute, because Scripture talks about if you reject Jesus as your Savior, that your name is blotted out of the Book of Life. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, you you can't blot something out unless it was there to begin with, which I believe it just supports where Scripture says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, then the proof of it is he put your name in the book. All you got to do is confirm your reservation. You know, uh, Yeshua paid the tab. You know, he paid the bill. All you got to do is confirm your reservation and you're in. You know, I don't mean to make light of it, but you know, that's, that's sort of the way it appears to me in the text. Uh, right. But then you got this other group that, whose names were never 
written in the book of life and you're like what is this and the only conclusion i can come to is these were like you said these are people who are never meant to exist in the first place mm. and and revelation clearly tells you that they will be here um you know in the last days all right well <laughs> sounds <laughs> right? good yeah no yeah and that's great. well no it's not great that's the wrong way to put it but <laughs> well there you go <laughs> oh there you go no but um one extremely interesting thing that i find one of the most more recent scientific breakthroughs that i've been following was the um quadruple helix dna sample that they've been finding wow. and yeah, that that's a new one cuz i was already already blown away by the triple right now i come out with quadruple i'm like oh boy yeah and it's it's uh, you know at this point I mean, yeah, exactly. Triple was one thing. Now we're at quadruple, but what does that even mean? You know, yeah. and yeah. it's not like these people are are exhibiting. You know, they're not. As far as I know, the these samples aren't coming from giants or you know whatever. But who knows at this point? Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, but again, it goes to the whole corrupting the image thing. That's not the, the way God intended it. So right. when you start creating Frankenstein, you know, we've all seen the movies. <laughs> it never turns out right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, according to Wired Magazine, the top five um, scientific discoveries in 2012, the first one was the Higgs boson at CERN. Uh, yeah. The second was uh, Curiosity rover landing on Mars. Yeah. And the third one I thought was interesting because just, just the commentary there, but it's the rise of variants. And I, I was like, what the heck is that? I don't know what that's about. But it's about hereditary genetics. And mm -hmm. and I don't know exactly all the ins and outs, but this is what Wired Magazine said, which I thought was interesting. Uh, it's about the rise of variants. They say that it's potentially troubling news for human population health, but there's a bright <laughs> side too. The sheer accumulation of new genetic variants means that humans are more evolvable than ever. So it's like, great. You know, it's looking bad for humans, but hey, we can evolve, you know, so it's the same concept that we've been hearing all along. And then, of course, number four, genome sequencing for fetuses, which, you know, we're talking, we're talking about yeah. the ability to have, you know, designer babies in the near future. Yeah. And then um, the, the last one here was the quantum teleportation distance record broken, which basically a couple countries, I think it was Austria and maybe China, I don't remember, but they basically broke the teleportation record of photons over 50 miles they were able to teleport um a photon so Woo. i mean you know star trek you know yeah yeah, <laughs> Straight up. yeah we're there yeah. anything the mind a man can conceive he can achieve yeah, yeah. You know, we're but let, let's shift gears just a bit just because um uh i wanted i want i want you to harp a little bit on what you're doing with the house church uh what, what's that all about what's the uh yeah, it's, it's actually it's it's not all that much of a variant from what we're talking about because uh, this is my third year of studying the the books of Moses, some people call it the Torah, um, and that's of course where we get all our information about the Nephilim anyway. So, uh, and that's what led me into that study is because as I started studying the Nephilim, of course, I spent most of my time in the books of Moses because that's where you you read about it primarily. You know, obviously you, know, you you read about it in the time of David and you know First and Second Samuel and Chronicles and all that too. But that that's later generation stuff. And it's kind of like I've got Nephilim Tourette's or something because we'll be studying and I'm like, Nephilim! <laughs> Nephilim, there it is again! <laughs> Nephilim, there it is again! You know, it's just like it, it's everywhere. Every time we do a study, it's there. 
Um, and so that's what got is, has gotten me excited, and I, I think a lot of other people have gotten excited too because they're seeing stuff in the scriptures that they'd never saw before, and it's really coming to life. I mean, like that book I mentioned earlier, the Dictionary of Scripture Proper Names, and there's this wild story where uh, Abraham, uh, his when Sarah dies, he's negotiating for a burial plot for Sarah, and. And it says in a number of places it mentions this character named Ephron who dwelt among the Hittites. Well, Hittites means the terrors. And if you look up Hittite art and, and sculptures and stuff from the ancient world, you see a lot of depictions of chimeric creatures like lion men. And people have either a, the body of a lion with a, a human head or the body of a human with a lion head, which makes me think of the lion men of Moab that we read about in, I think, it's 2 Samuel. Right, right. Um, so you see what appears to be confirming scriptures to what this artwork is showing, that these terrors, these phileme, had among them uh, chimeric animal-human creatures. And there's this one depiction that I show, uh, shows lion men on the ends, and in the middle is two satyrs. Um, and so Hittite means the terrors, and they're the ones drawing these ancient depictions on rocks or carving them in rocks. Um, and Ephron, his name means fawn-like. And so... It appears that Abraham was negotiating with the Seder for a burial plot for Sarah. And, and these are the kind of things that pop out when you're doing this kind of research. You're like, wow. So uh, we, my wife and I belong to a house church that we go to every week on Saturday. And we have these really cool discussions every week. I mean, we're studying uh, from the books of Moses, and we're also studying a portion from the prophets, because the prophets all referred back to the books of Moses, and sections in the New Testament that correlate with both the section that we read in the prophets and in the Torah. So it's the whole Bible. I mean, it's, we're doing a, a serious study here, but uh, starting with the, the books of Moses and then showing how that's a thread throughout the whole, the whole all 66 books. And I've learned more in two years of doing that than in the 41 years prior going to a regular church. And people have heard me talk about it on the radio and, and how excited I am about it and how there a lot of people are getting just totally disenfranchised with the church and they're, they're sick of, you know, sermon series about nothing and giving money to volleyball courts and Starbucks and building, you know, expansions and stuff like that. And they're frustrated. So they're like, where do we go? I mean, we don't, we don't what do we do? We don't have a, anybody that we can go to and have a house church like you have. And I thought, well... You know, in marketing, they say, find a need and fill it. <laughs> There's a big need right here. And I thought, well, uh, what if I create a virtual house church where we could do the same thing that my wife and I have the privilege of doing on Saturday, but just opening up to the world to come and join us on Friday nights. From We start at 8 and typically go to about 11. So I created a website, virtualhousechurch.com, and I use my blog talk show to uh, just do the same thing. We all just read the scriptures together and talk about it. You know, there's, it's, it's, it's an open forum where we can come and reason together and share insights because you'll have insights th that you'll pick up in the text that I won't have. I'll have stuff that you don't have, and together, hey, maybe we can learn something. And uh, it's been fun, man. Uh, we do it every Friday night from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. at uh, blogtalkradio.com. Just look for each of the virtual house churches. You can see all the archives. Or go to virtualhousechurch.com, and that's where I have all the archive audio and also show notes. So I'll put, if we reference a video or a, a topic or something of that nature, um, we, uh, I'll post that in the show notes. So you go, if you go to virtualhousechurch.com and click on the different weeks, there's like week one through, I think we're up to, we're going to have week 18 this week. 
So uh, you can see pictures and texts and videos and stuff like that that go along with the scripture reading study that we do. So it's a lot of fun. If you guys ever get a chance, I'd love to have you uh, join us. If you ever get a chance to uh, find some free time uh, on Friday nights, but yeah, uh, anybody's, anybody's welcome. It's an, it's an open forum. We say, hey, let's come and reason together and have our own little virtual house church here. There you go. So everybody make sure to go check that out. Now, before we start landing this plane, uh, how, was, uh, how are you coming on Seed the series? Yeah, Seed's taking some pretty wild uh, turns and directions. I mean, we're still on this, the main objective, uh, which is raising $4 million. But I'm actually Ooh. going to a screening of a movie called Stephenville Sightings. I met a filmmaker just recently uh, who's produced a documentary on the Stephenville Sightings of 2008, you know, the mile-wide spaceship that parked over the city yeah. uh, back in 2008. Uh, he's, he's pre- I've seen the trailer for it. It looks pretty awesome. He did it very uh, Blair Witch, uh, paranormal activity style right. uh, filming. Um, but he's local. He lives here, and he's got a network of filmmakers and stuff, and um, he's invited uh, me to go to a, a screening this Tuesday. And um, he's excited about what I'm trying to do at Seed and wants to see, you know, however he can become a part of it. I met another guy uh, uh, who he's really good with crowdfunding, right. and, and that's how, you know, we know that that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to do crowdfunding for Seed so that we can retain full creative control and not get censored or canceled, you know. Right. Um, <clears throat> we've got to raise $4 million. And this guy, he's done it for major, you know, uh, huge corporations. I think he works for Fortune 500 cor- corporations and whatnot. But anyway, he's, he's agreed to help me. You know, he basically says my website stink. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, they may look cool, but they don't do what they need to do in right. terms of generating traffic and funds. So uh, we're putting together basically a team of people that to, uh, this has been hard for me is to delegate because um, right. I don't have money to pay anybody right now it's all just a big dream so uh, you know when you don't have money to pay people and you're the only one that knows what's going on you got to do it all yourself you know right, right. Uh, so but I'm, I'm I'm trying to transition out of that there's been a lot of people that have called me that emailed me Facebook me saying hey you know we understand you can't pay us but we want to help and so I'm like, okay, let's just see if we can put this team together and, and I can start delegating stuff to get it off my plate and really build the momentum to, to uh, make this crowdfunding thing happen. And I don't know if you knew about this or not, but I went to South Africa in uh, November and uh-huh. I actually did, I did seven lectures there. I did seven seminars, uh, five in Pretoria, two in Cape Town. And when I went to Cape Town, the, our host down there took me to a movie studio and uh, showed me around, and uh, you know they made uh, District Nine there. Right, and, uh, right. They've actually, they've actually done. Yeah, that's a pretty, that's, pretty wild movie. That's a wild one for sure. Yeah, but they've got a a pretty thriving uh, film industry there. In fact, uh, as I understand it, um, Peter Jackson used them a little bit for some of his stuff. You know, in New Zealand there. Really. Um, so uh, they took me around, and they're, I was telling them about my project, and they said, well, where are you? And I said, well, we're trying to raise $4 million, so you're looking for investments. I said, yeah. He said, well, do you, do you have time? I, I'll see if I can get a meeting for you to meet with the CEO. Uh, I said, yeah, I got time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he, he went and got the guy, and uh, we went in his office and had a really, really good meeting with him. He just came back from the American film market, the AFM, and he said, let me tell you something after I showed him what Seed was and what we're trying to do, he says, this is what all the distributors are looking for. 
what you've got here is 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 a hot commodity right now. Hmm. He asked me about the budget. I told him, you know, in, in Los Angeles dollars, we'd be looking at two to three million to produce produce a V style show, right. uh, which was mostly done with green screen. A lot of V was uh, was green screen. Um, but you know, Fringe or any of those shows, you're still in the same type of ballpark, two to three million. But in Dallas, we figured with the resources we have here, we could do it for about a third of what it would cost in LA money for about a million dollars an episode. Over there, he said, "Well, we could probably cut that almost in half between wow. five fifty and wow. six hundred thousand per episode." Wow. And he's like, "Our our our country has the kind of scenery that fits any place on the planet. Whatever you want, we got it here." And of course, with green screen, you can you know really make any place look like anywhere you want. It also, right. so you know th- this was one of those like I'm I'm the feather and Forrest Gump man, just kind of floating <laughs> from one cool scene to another. I got blown into that scene, and I was like, well, you know, so I don't know what God's doing if that's where He's there leading us or not. But these are some of the paths that we've been on, and different directions Seed has uh, been taking. So I, I just have this sense in my spirit that. That now is the time that we've been in a preparation mode for the last two years, and now we're about to maybe step into production mode. But um, wow. you know, we well, still that, need to raise that four million dollars. So yeah, that, yeah, that's great though, Rob Skiba. You are hard at work, and uh, that's what I like to hear. And so yeah. well, we're all looking forward to uh, seed and the really. I'm getting ready to crack open this book here and give it a nice, nice thorough uh, run through here. Um, why don't you give us your uh, websites and everything before we we let you go? All right. Uh, the primary one these days is Babylon Rising Books. That's plural books dot com. Right. BabylonRisingBooks dot com. That's where you can get to just about everything else from there. Uh, you can access the blogs from there and check out stuff I'm doing with Seed and everything too. Uh, but that's where all my uh, the two books that I've got published now and all of the DVDs and all of our other products and stuff are there. Wonderful. Where they, well, there we go, Rob Skiba. Thanks again for coming on the show. Always a pleasure. And, and uh, yeah. you know, our very first double um, show, triple show now guest. So you, you You've get been that on, on the show more than anybody else. Wow. Wow. Well, it's an honor, guys. I your check it. will be Thank coming you. in the mail. <laughs> Four million. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it, everybody. Rob Skiba, make sure to go visit his um, websites there. Get the book. Check it out. Uh, what's the What's the name of the book here? Archon Invasion, The Rise, Fall, and Return of the Nephilim. Thank you very much for being on the show. Everybody, come back next week for more Canary Cry Radio. And as always, think outside the cage. Thank you for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. The show notes for this episode and many others are available at canarycryradio.com. Make sure to connect and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash canarycryradio. Follow us on Twitter at canarycryradio. If you would like to share the show in video format, you can find us on YouTube by searching Canary Cry Radio. Review us on iTunes with five stars and give us a thumbs up on stumbleupon.com. We would like to thank those of you who have given us your support, prayers, and donations. If you would like to join us and support Canary Cry Radio financially, you could do so by visiting canarycryradio.com and clicking the support tab. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, remember to think outside the cage.